Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, on this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, we sit down with professional baseball player and Louisiana native David DeLucci as we talk a little bit about his 13-year career in the major leagues and balancing baseball and bow season. We talk a little bit about managing bucks, managing land and property, and what it was like to grow up bow hunting and deer hunting in the West Felicianas in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. So y'all stick around. This is going to be a great episode. But before we get started, we've got to give a big shout out to our two sponsors. First up is Cousin Smokehouse, home of the original pork jerky, who just came out with a new flavor called Cane Fire, which is a little sweet and a little hot. So definitely check that out at your local archery shop, outdoor shop, or gas station. And then also Steve German's Taxidermy, who's the only taxidermist that's made it easier for you to transport your deer across state lines by having a separate drop-off point in Orange, Texas, where you can drop off your deer without having to cape it out. So y'all be sure to check them out on Facebook and Instagram and be sure to support our great local companies we got in the great state of Louisiana. Enjoy this week's episode. All right, let's get started. So uh, we are here tonight with David DeLucci. We're here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And David was a 13-year veteran. David, David, Yeah, veteran. Yeah, David was a 13-year veteran of Major League Baseball. Tell us a little bit about that, man. Uh, it, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And... Um, Never dreamed that I would play a day in the major leagues, but that was always my goal ever since I was a kid. We were going through some stuff in my mom's attic recently, uh, as early as preschool, four years old, three years old, and and they, we had little little books that said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And uh, I always put baseball player. You yeah, know, that was 
that was a goal of mine. And, um, I do a lot of motivate motivational speeches for schools and, and businesses. And that's one of the things that I tell everybody is have a dream and work toward that dream and set up individual goals to be able to achieve that. And that's what I did, um, throughout my life. I always wanted to be the best baseball player that I personally could be. And, um, I was given, uh, God given talent. I was fast. Um, I was strong, but, uh, uh, the talent that I was given was just like everybody else and his ability to work mm-hmm. and dream. And, and left-handed. And left-handed, yeah. So uh, I worked awfully hard. I'm five foot ten, man. Um, the average height of an outfielder in the major leagues is six foot when I was playing. So I had to overcome a lot of stereotypes, and I had to go above and beyond uh, what was needed to, to prove that I belonged. And I played well in Little League. And, um, my goal was to be a high school baseball player and, and I played well in high school. And then my next goal was to be, you went to Catholic high. Yeah. Went to to Catholic high. Yeah. And then because of that, what everybody kind of figured you, that you were going to take the path to LSU. Isn't that right? Yeah, they did. And, and, uh, that doesn't always happen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, the recruiting process is funny. I was recruited by Mississippi state and Ole Miss I played football and baseball in high school, and that was my my thought was to go play. I love football, love mm-hmm. football. That's that's my love, uh, and and I really wanted to go play both sports, and and I had a lot of offers for that. Actually, LSU when Mike Archer was here, off uh, recruited me for football. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent sent uh, letters, and uh, LSU baseball did not. Oh man, so. I was uh, when when the local alumni heard that I was either going to go to Ole Miss or Mississippi State, they they really got on Skip Bertman, and he finally sent me a letter that said, "We'll offer you uh, to be a preferred walk on, and if you make the team, you can earn books." And uh, which they did that to a lot of local players, so that they could take that money, that scholarship money, and go out and recruit from California and Florida. And uh, I took it as an insult, really. Um, Ole Miss offered me an unbelievable opportunity and uh, ended up going to Ole Miss, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, it was an incredible experience for me. But it was another step to that ultimate goal of being a major league was to go over and, and be a good college baseball player. And I got in college, and uh, it was a dream come true. And then my next goal was to be the best college baseball player that I could be. And uh, I worked awfully hard. And, um, and then I got drafted yeah. and, uh, and then I just kept moving up. So the goals got bigger and bigger every step of the way. Now, so what all major league teams did you play for over your career? I played for seven major league teams. I was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in 1997. Um, I was picked at the time in, in November, I made it to, I'm sorry, 1995, I was drafted by the Orioles. I made it to the major leagues in 1997. Uh, they're allowed because there were two expansion teams, the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. They had an expansion draft in uh, that fall. I was picked by the Diamondbacks. Uh, I played with them on the inaugural team in 1998. We're about to celebrate our 20th year nice. uh, anniversary. And um, uh was with the Diamondbacks for six years. I went from there to the New York Yankees. Uh, to the Texas Rangers, to the Philadelphia Phillies, to the Cleveland Indians, and I finished my career with um, 
the Toronto Blue Jays. So yeah. Now you skipped something major there. You skipped the fact that you won a World Series with the uh, with the Diamondbacks, right? In two thousand one. Yeah, I did. I, I did. Um, two thousand one was uh, an incredible uh, experience for us. It was also probably the the, the biggest tragedy in in uh, our nation's history with nine eleven, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it was just it was awful and and the experience that we had because we played the New York Yankees in the World Series. The New York Yankees are one of the most hated franchises in sports history. And because of 9-11 and because of what that city went through and and all the uh, incredible uh, first responders in that city, they became the team that everybody pulled for. You know, it was uh, uh, quite a reversal there. So actually the guys on the Diamondbacks, myself included, had they won the World Series, I can't say we would have been that disappointed because yeah. we were pulling for them and what they went through too. We had the opportunity to go to ground zero, and um, a lot of people remember the first pitch that was thrown out in Yankee Stadium was by President Bush with a uh, armored vest on under his jacket. There mm-hmm. was uh, extra umpire on the field that while he was throwing out that first pitch, that was a Secret Service agent and there were snipers on the on the light posts it was unbelievable wow. um so it was an incredible series and i'm happy to say that we won the world series randy johnson kurt Schilling were co-mvps and um pretty pretty darn cool yeah pretty darn cool that's awesome man so you told me uh before we got started on this that y'all had a delay um between 9-11 and the World Series. Mm-hmm. Normally normally the playoffs are go until October, right? Right. And, and because of that, they were delayed until November because of obviously the, the teams in it, where it was, and things like that. So, yeah. Um, but uh, that's that's awesome that y'all are able to come out on top. It's, I, I'm positive that's a highlight moment of your life, if not it's, the pinnacle. It's pretty impressive. I mean, to think about the kid – from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that was always labeled as being undersized and an overachiever. Mm-hmm. Uh, to think about where I came from um, with that dream and that goal. Uh, and and I can't tell you how many games we played in the backyard with wiffle ball where, you know, you talk about the bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, and game seven of the World Series. Well, and I was on first base in yeah. the bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, you know, World Jeez. Series. I was there. And, uh, uh, it's pretty, pretty awesome. It's something that you'll keep for the rest of your life. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I think you and I kind of have a, uh, maybe a different story of how we met and became friends. Um, first of all, I was never much of a baseball guy myself. I've probably told you this 20 times now. And the reason I say that is because I would imagine there's not many people in life that you know, that you meet later that, don't know your career or what you did or you're playing and all that stuff. And so I tell you all the time, I just liked you because you're my neighbor and you like to kill the shit out of deer. <laughs> you know, like we were both big bow, bow hunters. Yeah. Um, and then we became good friends over the past two years. And uh, and that's, I mean, probably 90% of what we talk about is, you know, yeah. deer, deer picks. You know, I got this on camera. You're looking at this and uh, and stuff like that. So you and I have become friends on a, a different arena of yeah. the outdoors. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the way that happened was – uh, we were both fighting a development going up near our neighborhoods. You know, mm-hmm. you and I, we're not side-by-side neighbors. We live in, in different neighborhoods side-by-side. But um, after we won the first round of that, you would send me an email. Because uh, I, don't, I, don't I don't believe we'd ever met in person before that. 
No, I remember you speaking at the um, at the commission meeting. Mm-hmm. You spoke before me. I, I remember yeah. that. So I had what what happened was um, the March of actually your wife. Spoke. Oh my! Yeah, I was yeah, out of town. You were out of town. That's yep. that's why. Yeah, I was I was out of town. My wife. I had made a video because she and I. If y'all remember, in 2016, Baton Rouge had two floods. Everybody remembers the one in August, but people don't remember the one in March as well because it wasn't as devastating. But in 2000, March of 2016, my wife and I went out onto the property that they were trying to develop, and we got a bunch of footage, GoPro footage in my in my boat, my duck boat, um, and you know, out there on the pro drive, just trying to get trying to prove that this place goes underwater. You shouldn't build a neighborhood mm-hmm. here, and um, and so I'd made a video for my wife to present at the commission meeting. Uh, you were there, and then so long story short, we ended up winning that one. It mm-hmm. got shut down. And then you sent me an email a few weeks later uh, saying, hey, watch your video um, when they come back around again to, to, to kind of battle this out. Let's team up and, and we'll, we'll, we'll both fight the flooding side of, of this argument and let other people take the other ones. And then through that, you and I hung out. And we had a couple of beers and, and you know, talked about bow hunting endlessly uh, mm-hmm. ever since. So. Um, but one of the things that I'm really interested in, I think other people are try would be interested in is how, what's your relationship with hunting? How did you get into bow hunting and, and how'd you grow up with it? Well, I tell everybody baseball is what I do. It's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and one of the beauties of being a baseball player is the fact that you're labeled as the boys of summer you play in, in your spring training starts in February and you play into October if you're lucky enough to make the playoffs, and sometimes November because of the 2001 World Series. But you have the whole winter to to hunt. Yeah, and it was perfect for me. Uh, I remember as as a young boy, my dad taking me into the woods at four years old and falling in love with the outdoors, hunting and fishing, and everything involved. And um, and it stuck with me. And I have a tremendous respect for the outdoors and, and, um, and trying to preserve it. And that's what we were fighting that battle for was, um, trying to preserve a piece of property that should not be developed. And, um, so I am a hunter. Um, I do, uh, take pride in, in, in being an ethical hunter and eating as I know you do and you cook extremely well eating everything well, that's, I mean if you look on the stove that is deer lasagna is it really yeah venison that's, lasagna that's great <laughs> man that's, that's great um so you know it, it it's part of my lifestyle it's and my family loves it they love what what I bring home from our hunting trips and uh and I'm very very thankful to have a father who as he was growing up had no one in his family that were outdoorsmen mm-hmm. And he learned it from friends of his and from my mom's side of the family. And my mom's side of the family are big duck hunters. My dad is a deer hunter. And um, and he always made sacrifices to make sure that I had a place to hunt. We were in a couple leases. We were in a lease in St. Francisville and, uh, and then Woodville. Uh, and then he ended up purchasing a piece of property in uh, Union Church, Mississippi. Now tell, so tell, tell us that story about how you found out about that piece of property uh, and what else was going on at the time. Well, the, the, at the time, we uh, we lost the, the lease in Woodville, which was a fantastic, phenomenal lease with huge deer, uh, which is where I learned to bow hunt, actually. 
And, um, and so my dad was looking at some properties that didn't, didn't come through. And then he decided because I was so involved in baseball to, uh, buy into a franchise that was, um, uh, batting cages Mm -hmm. and, uh, grand slam batting cages. And so that's, that's what he was going to bring to Baton Rouge. And the day that he was supposed to submit, um, the, the check for the franchise. I was at school in grade school. I think I was in the, the sixth grade and I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who, uh, his, his dad had a piece of property in Port Gibson, Mississippi. He was telling me how great it was. And it's actually in the big buck triangle is what he told me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we started talking about it and he said, yeah, and there's another piece of property for sale near ours. Y'all need to look into it. So, I excused myself from class, went to the principal's office. In sixth grade. In sixth grade. And you want to know how important hunting is to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and always was. I went to the principal's office and, uh, and talked her into letting me call my dad because it was an emergency. And, um, and I got him on the phone. I said, hey, did you submit your, your money for the batting cages yet? And he said, no. And I said, well, there's a piece of property that, that Rick is telling me is really good in the Big Buck Triangle. We need to go look at it. And we went that weekend, and Dad ended up buying that piece of property. Doing that instead of instead of the batting cages. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. How long did y'all have that piece of land? 28 years. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, 28 years. That's a, that's a pretty good story, man. That's Yeah, that's- man. It was uh, it's pretty crazy. And, I'm uh, you know, I remember basically growing up uh, – in the outdoors on that piece of property and, and the freedom that I had and, and the ability to learn to be a young man and to learn the outdoors. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a wide open space with no borders basically for me to go out the front of the camp and, um, and learn things, learn what deer were eating and browse. And, and as I got older, my interest level increased and changed to different facets of, the outdoors and you know is how can i do this what what do i need to do to do that where do i need to put the stand mm-hmm. what are they eating what, at this time of the year what can we do to improve the property and the herd and i think because of that piece of property and i am extremely thankful for my dad um i became a land manager and a herd manager mm-hmm. and it was no longer in the hunting clubs that we were in and and you know they were they were somewhat lenient on what we were shooting in the hunting clubs, but you always wanted to ha- kill the biggest deer. And, and But no one really, really got involved with how to grow big deer. Well, this was our own piece of property, and we could manipulate that property and improve that property to improve the herd. And I think that's where I made the shift of I am a killer to I am a manager and mm-hmm. I want to build bigger deer and I want to uh, uh, grow bigger deer and build a better piece of property. So I became more cognizant of what it took yeah. to uh, to let the deer get get older and bigger. And it was no longer about, and I say this all the time, and, and to each his own. That's, that's the beauty of hunting, right? I mean, there are people out there that I catch a lot of flack uh, when, whenever I, I've done articles and on Twitter and stuff like that, but people are out there, they want to go kill 
and that's what they want to do. They'll 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 kill a year and a half old buck, and that will be uh, a prize for them. And man, hats off to them mm-hmm. because it's no one should be all in the same mindset. That's the beauty of hunting. You yeah. do what you want, but for me, it became more of I want to grow bigger deer so that I just don't cut the horns off and stick them inside my garage. Mm-hmm. I want the deer to be bigger and and let him get older so that I take the head and I put him over my mantle. Well, so uh, that's that's something that I've, I've talked about in previous podcasts and, and something that I believe in is that there's stages of bow hunters. There's people that everybody's at a different level in their hunting career right now. Some people, um, I, I got asked last week, I was at uh, Bayou Land Bow Hunters. I was um, talking with Derek Menina and uh and brandon cormier was there of course and derek he goes derek said um you know what do you think about people shooting spikes like that that was the question Mm -hmm. and i was like well how much time do you have you know because i can i can give you a bunch of different answers but um my personal opinion on not just spikes but young small deer in general is that i think as a bow hunter if you're relatively new to the sport it is imperative that you have some early on success. You you, you have to kill something that's going to keep you going, because um, long before I got into the, you know was hooked up with Louisiana Bow Hunter and long before I started bow hunting seriously uh, about seven or eight years ago, I I gave bow hunting the good old college try for about half a season and I was literally like f this this sucks mm-hmm. you know I was a duck yeah. hunter through and through I was used to that action I was used to that nonstop mourning the camaraderie the warmth the uh you know the movement and the and the fun involved in the activity and I I was like you know I'm gonna try bow hunting and and I did that because I. I never really got into rifle hunting that, that never seemed like something that I, I, I knew I would enjoy, you know? And so I tried bow hunting out and, you know, I never saw a deer with that bow and mm-hmm. like, I don't know, I must've seen, I must've made eight hunts. And of course, most of them were in Sherburne, um, which, uh, maybe making eight hunts and not seeing a deer is the norm. But, um, I gave it up for about three years, two or three years, and then, um, got more heavily back into it when I moved to Baton Rouge. But, uh, I really think had I even had a deer come within 30 yards of me that first season that I would have never given it up, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and that's just, that's a small little thing that he, that's a small leaf that has to turn over to change the game entirely. Um, and because bow hunting isn't necessarily about killing a deer, a lot, it's more, more so just being close to deer, being near them right. and them not knowing. And so, um, you know, when it comes to spikes and small deer or young does or whatever, shoot it. Like if it's your first or under your 10th year and that gets your heart pumping, man, shoot it. But there's a dynamic shift. There's, there's in everybody's time limit is different on this. There is a time where that spike or that four point or even that small little basket six is not going to make your heart pump as much as it used to. And so I think that's the thing that we're all chasing is, is that replicating the feeling of our first hunt replicate it's not our first hunt replicating the feeling of our first bow kill or our first deer kill Mm -hmm. and so as we progress as bow hunters we find we we find that we only can get close to that again as we find more uh formidable opponents yeah which is where the big deer come in the the mature bucks because those are the ones that truly will outsmart you they will outplay you in the game you know, um, is that, is that kind of in in parallel to your progression as a bow hunter? Do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, 
and and look, I I, I say it again. A, a trophy is different in 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 different folks' eyes. I mm-hmm. mean, a spike is a trophy for some people, and if that's the case, and and they are under different situations than a a landowner with a lot of property, then man, don't take it away from them. Mm-hmm. You know, but but if you have the ability to grow big deer, you're a landowner, you're in a lease, and and it's managed. Uh, well, then, then I'm all for, for maybe, you know, raising the bar a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know, but, um, I'm to the age now where I'm, I'm not going to look down on anybody that kills a spike if they truly, uh, truly are are happy with it. Mm -hmm. Now, if a guy kills a spike and, and it's, it's nothing, it doesn't even get his heart pumping, but he, he just wants to kill it because he kills it. That's a different story. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between killers and, and hunters. There's mm-hmm. a difference between managers and uh, guys that just go out there and slay. You don't find a lot of bow hunters that are, are truly killers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, they, they well, we get we get more we get more th- from the process, the whole process. Sure, you know, it's from start to finish, and it doesn't it doesn't start when you're the sun comes up and you're in the stand. The start is practicing in your backyard. The mm-hmm. start is working on your deer stand the start is trying you know scouting and trying to figure out how can i get that deer in my lap the strategy the strategy and and um and so i i see bow hunters um they're a little bit different than than uh than rifle hunters and look man i hunt with a rifle too and um but it's it's a different ball game when you're when you're kind of whispering at that deer trying to get them within bow range mm-hmm. and they make a you know left turn and they start to go away and you're trying to coax them back um it it it, it you have to be uh, on your a game mm-hmm. you know and and I think those type of hunters appreciate um the process and and maybe managing their herd a, a little bit more but yeah a trophy is different in everybody's eyes so so when did you start bow hunting what, what do you have any I idea started, what year? Um, ten years old. When you were ten. Ten years old, I started bow hunting, um, by myself with 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 a bow that I actually killed a a, um, a doe. Uh, I remember it very well on a fence row, and um, it was unbelievable, man. I mean, I remember that deer, hearing that deer, and watching it come through the woods, and and you know, mum, you know, whispering to it to, to get across the fence and to get, you know, go past the tree. And then, you know, you always dream about it and you have to draw when the deer walks behind the tree. And sure enough, your first deer, it's, they're going to freeze you for, you know, it feels like eternity before <laughs> it, it walks behind the tree and gives you an open shot. And, um, and I was hooked, but as a youngster, it was hard for me to have patience to be a good bow hunter. That was, that was luck, mm-hmm. you know. It was easier with a rifle to sit in a stand and hunt over a food plot. Now that I'm older, I've got quite a few deer under my belt. It's all about bow hunting because where I'm at, the point in my hunting, and, and I will, I will, you know, I have a child that's going to be old enough that's, that sat in a deer stand with me last year that will be old enough to actually harvest animals in the next couple of years. It will change, but I'm to the point now where I sit in a stand and, uh, and I'm totally content with seeing a deer and never, never picking my bow off, Mm -hmm. off the hanger. I did that last year with 156 inch deer under my tree. Yeah. 
Um, it's all about getting out there and, and watching these majestic animals. And for me, it's growing them to their, the, you know, this, the size that the land and the genetics will allow them to be. It's mm-hmm. getting the full potential out of the deer. Yeah. So, so, um, you say you enjoy growing the deer and getting the full potential. What are some of the, what are the set some of the tactics you do for property management? Are you, um, are you feeding to hunt over the feed? Are you feeding for retention? What are you trying to do there? I have to feed to beat my neighbors at the game. So that never ends by the way. So it all property ends. is the same, right? It is. Yeah. And, and, and one of my neighbors this year has gone to a no feed rule and I think it's the greatest rule ever. I love deer to be natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and, and that's all I hate it. I hate feeding deer. We have feed stations on my property that, that are in the, in the middle of the property and we don't hunt around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want the deer to be natural the way I look at my piece of property. I got lucky and it's, it's kind of, um, shaped like a, a square. Mm-hmm. I have a perimeter road that goes around it on all sides. And then I have a road down the middle of it that goes west to east and my stands are probably within 30 yards off the roads. I don't go in the middle. No one goes in the middle of that property. There are places in that property that have ne- I've never stepped on. Really? And I've owned that place for about 10 years because I want the middle of that property to be a safe haven for deer. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if you let the deer be natural and, and, and you let them be calm, eventually they will walk to your stand. Where, mm-hmm. where, and, and we have, we have stands on that place that, uh, I put up the first year and we haven't moved. The only time we move them is, is after the season, put them in a garage and then put them back out there. We don't walk around. We don't move stands. We have our, our areas where I feel very comfortable because I, I took a year to, to, to scout it out. And if there is one big deer, um, that we, we kind of know where he is, we will work our way to him. Uh, but we're not going to go open in day and just like go an outside in approach outside in. Yeah. You know, but I'm still not going to, to take a stand and stick it in his bedroom. I'm mm-hmm. going to move toward him, but I'm not going in there. Um, and I, I, I kind of, uh, an example is if somebody puts a, a 15 foot ladder stand in my bedroom, I'm going to notice it as soon as I walk in there. Right. Yeah. So I want that dude to feel as comfortable as he can, because at some point, He's going to walk and follow a doe right under one of my stands. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's worked. Uh, I have deer on my place that are so calm. They don't look in trees. I've hunted deer that look straight up. <laughs> they would rather look 12 foot off the ground than they do straight ahead because yeah. they know what's in those trees. Not on, not on my place. I have the ability and the, the acreage is enough that I can keep these deer calm. So you, yeah. So your tactic is to just provide almost a safe haven for them. And yep. then, and then, you know, every once in a while, uh, not many a year, maybe select a few to take. Yeah. Right. I've got a, I've got a, a, a very low limit. Uh, um, Dr. Harry Jacobson is a friend of mine. I met him when I was playing with the Texas Rangers and, uh, doc went out, he was, he was managing a piece of property next to mine. Um, and he went out, I ended up buying my place without ever looking at it. Oh, yeah. I sent my dad and Dr. Jacobson over there and, um, and they looked at it for me and told me it was a wise decision to buy it. And I ended up buying it 
and it wasn't until after the baseball season that I truly went out there and uh, and got to see it. So uh, Doc set up a plan for me, and uh, my goal is to take three trophy deer a year, and um, and it depends on the year. It it may be two, mm-hmm. it may be one, um, but three is my max. I kill a couple of cold bucks every year, and I shoot does accordingly. Um, I have doe tags from from the wildlife and fisheries. I'm on a DMAP program, and I've never filled all of the tags that they've given me because uh, I believe no one knows my property as good as I do, mm-hmm. and I regulate what I think should be taken from one year to the next. And um, quite honestly, um, I took one doe last year uh, only because she was infested with moles I mean, it was the grossest thing I've ever seen in my life. Moles? Moles, all or warts, whatever they were. Yeah. They were all over her body. Uh, they, she was blind. She had uh, two grapefruit-sized moles uh, hanging over her eyelids. Mm. Um, that was the only doe I killed last year and the year before. I killed one doe as well because um, she had broken her hoof and uh, she had coyotes trailing her. Mm. So um, because... Uh, I have seen a rapid decline in deer population since I bought the place 10 years ago. And so I'm not going to continue to fill doe tags when I don't believe yeah. that that's what's needed. I, th- I think. Um, so are you still on the same DMAP, DMAP plan structure as you originally same, were? Same tier. Same tier. Yep. So and, uh, and they hate me for it. Has there been any reassessment or anything like that? <laughs> no, not not on their part. And and uh, they hate me. I've I've gotten in discussions the last two years, they want me to shoot more deer, uh, more does, so they can um, uh, take the lactation test to see what the numbers are out there. But I keep telling them I, I'm out there on, on every, you know, almost on a daily basis. I'm out there quite a bit, and uh, they don't need the lactation rates to know that uh, our deer herd is suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, in in that area right there, I've got neighbors that are pounding does. Rifles and bows, they're pounding those because they're filling their quota. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to be the safe haven in there. I don't I don't want to keep pounding does because they're taking care of the numbers for me. I'd love to have uh, does in the freezer to eat. We, we would eat deer year-round. Mm-hmm. But I think what's best for my deer herd is to lay off of them because everybody else is harvesting so many deer. And yeah. um, they were all about numbers. I'm about well-being and health. Now, what are what are some of the factors do you think outside of your neighbors that that are um, contributing to the decline in deer? I, you know, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure on it. I I think that um, in the ten years that I've been there, I think that uh, the woods have opened up. I think we're we're definitely in need of of a thinning out um, to get more underbrush. I'm I have um, issues with flooding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the major issue is um, uh, when you have property that uh, has potential to flood, uh, it runs the deer to the high grounds. And the flooding is usually in January. Um, this year it started started flooding in January. And it is there's places on my property that have not seen sunlight since January. Mm-hmm. When those deer congregate to the high points, usually during the time that they drop fawns, they're easy pickings for coyotes and ants. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think with about five years of, of monumental biblical floods, yeah. as some people say, uh, I think it's been extremely stressful for those uh, that give birth. And, um, and that's why I think that's one of the reasons that we don't have the deer numbers that we had when I bought the place 10 years ago. If you combine that with the fact that everybody is still filling the same amount of doe tags Mm -hmm. or, or the same numbers, um, and you keep having uh, poor recruitment, uh, with your fawns, you're going to have a decline in your population. Yeah. And, um, and I believe that if everybody would, would, would ease up for a couple of years, I think it would bounce back. But it, that trend has not changed since, yeah. uh, since I bought the place. Well, it's hard, you know, it's, it's difficult to convince people to, um, logically take a step back on how many deer they take because everybody might be looking at the same picture differently and they're going to look at it in major defense of the DMAP numbers that they may feel, might feel obligated to take. But in addition to that, if you're on a DMAP program and you're in a lease, well, isn't that like a hunter's dream? You get to take more deer every year. You get to pull the trigger more. You get to shoot more deer, more bucks, more does, yada, yada, yada. Um, a little land yap every season. And so when you have that permission, if you will, that, that, that hall pass to shoot more deer than your six tags, there's not a lot of people that are say, ah, no, thanks. I don't want that. Um, and I think the only people that might think that way are, um, maybe new age deer clubs that have a better management, uh, plan, um, mm-hmm. and then property owners. And both of those things are the minority of deer hunters. You know, most deer hunters are lease lease members or public land hunters Mm -hmm. and and because of that you've got uh and rightfully so people that are more opportunists they're in it for the this weekend the right now the the you know it's october 1st i want to shoot a deer on on opening day they're not in it for the five man this place will be great in three years you know what i mean um and and there's nothing wrong with that everybody's got a different perspective but um it's uh so do you think do you think if your property didn't flood as much as it does this wouldn't be the case I don't, I don't know because uh, I think flooding has a lot to do with it. And look, to, to your point, I mean, it costs an awful lot of money to be a deer hunter, just like it does to be a duck hunter. Mm-hmm. And, and it's getting to the point where a lot of people do not want to spend that much money, excuse me, to go sit in a P-Row and not shoot ducks or, or only mm-hmm. shoot a certain amount, you know, with the limit being where it is. It costs a lot to be a deer hunter. And a lot of people justify that cost by shooting numbers. Mm-hmm. And and I've had people tell me, well, we pay X amount of dollars, so we're going to pull the trigger or we're going to release an error. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sadly, a lot of people feel that way. And sometimes it's justified. But if you have the property and you have the ability to, to manage it, um, you know, case in point was, was a club that the members were paying $10,000 a membership. And, and a member told me, you know, I'm, I'm not paying $10,000 not to shoot, so I'm going to shoot. And so, but I told them, I said, well, hey man, you can shoot 120 inch deer for $10,000, but if you wait a year or two years, you might shoot 150, 160 inch deer for $10,000. To me, that's, you know, more bang for the buck. Yeah. You know what I'm Literally. saying? Literally yeah. more bang for the buck. And, um, and I think people, if, if people would step back and, and think that way, and they had the ability to, uh, 
to feel comfortable that they were going to have that lease again. That's another thing. These yeah, people the don't know if they're going to be there. You yeah. know? So I understand where they're coming from. But to your question, I think flooding has a lot to do with it. But that piece of property that my dad had in Mississippi was the same way. We saw a decline in the deer herd, in the numbers, um, and there's no flooding involved in, in that area. And, and I remember... 20 something years ago, my dad went to a, a, a management uh, seminar and, and they had on the board uh, four photos of four different antlerless deer. And they said, which one of these would you kill? It was, you know, the big nanny floppy ear doe. It was the fawn. It was a year on those four different does. And one guy would say, you know, I would kill the, the maiden doe. And another guy would say, I would kill this doe. And the guy said, well, the answer is to kill all of them kill every antlerless deer out there because, hmm. you know, we have a, a deer population issue that we need to get the numbers down. Well, maybe at that time you did 20, 25 years ago, but you have to be able to adjust the game plan as yeah. you go on. And I think we're it, think, remember there was a time when I was a youngster where we had doe days, right? We, we hunted for doe days. And mm -hmm. so those were the days that you shot does two weekends or one weekend, whatever it was. Now it's doe day every single day, man. Yeah. And we are blasting does like it's nobody's business. There may have been a time where I think that that was valid, but I think we're way past that now. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and I'm worried about where the deer population is because of how hard we've been hammering the does in all parts of the state in all parts of the South. Um, I think there's some areas where, the deer population may still be up there, but it's not fair for one to say that what you do in the northeast part of the state should be the same as what you do in the southwest. You've mm -hmm. really got to go out there, and no one knows their property. No one knows the area more than landowners and guys that spend a significant amount of time, not the guys behind the desks that make the, the laws mm -hmm. that tell me I need to shoot this many does. It's the guy that's out there every single day. So I think it's we have to find a way to to balance it to give people what they want, which is to harvest deer, but also make sure that there are deer out there for the future for our kids and grandkids. Because I think at the rate we're going, uh, the deer population is going to be in trouble yeah. really soon. Do you think uh, our current deer limits are 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 good? Do you think we should keep it lower? I mean, of course this. It's just an opinion. It doesn't really matter. But how do you feel about killing sixty a year? It it um, it all depends on on where you're at in in the area you're hunting. I think six deer uh, for me and and where I'm at and what I'm seeing every year is is way too much. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't comment on somebody else's lease, not knowing what's going on over there. So I, I think we really have to take responsibility on our our own. We have to be stewards of of the herd and the land and and the sport for the future mm -hmm. i think that's the key is to be responsible for for where you're at you know we always say if you borrow something return it better than what it was well i mean we're kind of borrowing the outdoors right yeah. it's not ours i mean i own a piece of property it's not mine mm -hmm. um so i want to make it better not uh, not deplete it to where in 10 years you know, my children won't be able to hunt anymore, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of other factors to that. There's tons of other factors to it. And we've added chronic waste disease this past year. And some say 
it's always been in Mississippi, but it's a hot topic now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, not terribly far from where I hunt. And that's a major concern. You know, it's just something else we have to deal with. Is that the reason why your neighbor and property stopped feeding? It could have been, but I, I think the, the main reason is um, is to, to let the deer be natural. Look, I've got, I've got photos on trail cameras of deer by a feeder that um, uh, one mature buck, one monster buck that my dad ended up harvesting probably 15 years ago. And, and he would go to a corn feeder, and he didn't harvest it over the corn feeder. But he would go to the corn feeder, and he would lay next to it, and, and he sleep. he would just sleep next to it, and yeah. he would eat, and he would sleep. And at five thirty in the morning, when you knew somebody was going to that stand, he would get up when he heard footsteps, and he would take off. So, I think that when we hunt around feeders, I think we change the deer's natural habit, and um, and sometimes we turn them nocturnal. And yep. I think that's what they did. They they wanted to take that away and allow deer to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think they'll see more deer during the daylight hours. Yeah, that's a good point. That was something that Warren Womack had told us in our our um our third episode of the podcast was uh you know, he's a he he's a uh, feed tree hunter. That's his that's the title he's given himself. And um he's hunting he is hunting trees more than he's hunting deer. He's hunting for a perfect uh perfectly ripe, perfectly um um position feed tree where deer I think his exact words were I want the tree to make me want to hunt it um and it could be hard mass like acorns it could be soft mass like persimmons or things like that but um that was his theory as well he does a lot of public land hunting and one of the reasons why is because he can't seem to find a place where people aren't feeding all the time and he's also been so successful on public land because he's hunting with uh, more you could say natural tactics um uh, to the woods and the deer are in certain areas of public land less nocturnal when you hunt them in their bedroom and you're killing them the first time you ever go there. Mm-hmm. Um, setting up a stand, you know, at one in the afternoon for an afternoon for an evening hunt and not setting up a stand in the dark in the morning, you know, um, and things like that. So, um, so that, I mean, that's a good point. And that's something that I guess I hadn't given much thought to before Warren said it, but it's a great point. You, you are, I mean, imagine if you came home and you hadn't been home all day and dinner was ready on the table. Mm-hmm. How much would that freak you out? <laughs> you know, think about yeah. that. That's, yeah, that's the I equivalent. Yeah. You know, imagine if you're just walking through your house and you've got, you know, somebody cooked a five-course meal and had it on your it's bed. There. And, they, and they said, it will always be here. Yeah. Always. You don't have to do it. You don't have to work for it. You you can lay in that bed and eat in that bed. You don't have to get up. I mean, yeah. that, and that's, that's basically what you're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and in talking about that feeding war, if you have, if, if you have a neighboring piece of property that's going to feed, then you feel like, man, they're taking, they're taking all our, all our animals. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so I gotta, I gotta, I gotta make sure that they know that there's a, a meal over here too on, on, yeah. you know, some beds over here. And, and then it becomes a, a, a feeding battle back and forth. Who's going to feed the most. And, and, um, but you know, I, I mean, I've got photos. Um, I don't know really and truly, um, I, I don't know the percentages, but there are a lot of mature bucks that will not go near a feeder. Mm-hmm. They just, they just won't do it. And, um, and I don't know, 
really a deer, which I, I look for is a deer in the five and a half and up age group, preferably six and a half years old, because I think that a deer reaches his full potential in his antler growth at six and a half years old. Some people say five and a half, uh, but right around there. Um, I don't know how many six and a half year old deer that I've ever seen go up to a feeder. Yeah. Um, I've got a whole bunch of pictures of them walking by feeders mm-hmm. and they're being does at the feeder. And this is at nighttime now. Um, I just don't think it happens, especially in the area that I'm at because there's so much, uh, browse native browse in the area that, uh, I think if, if you give a deer, uh, a lot of natural growth, I think they would rather prefer that mm-hmm. over chalky corn that's been sitting in a bag for God knows how long. Right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, um, but your younger deer, your year and a half old deer and your, your does, they'll, they'll, I've seen them eat out of plenty feeders before. You know, I, I feel the same way. I, I like to see big feed trees. I mean, you and I were talking about this. I'm, I've got a new interest is fertilize, just picking places in the woods and just throwing fertilizer out. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when I was throwing corn out. And now it's, let's just, let's throw some fertilizer here. There's some growth. There's some, some natural grasses here. Let's fertilize it. And I've had really good success last year in bow hunting over the areas and, and I'll fertilize around a, a feed tree uh, at about a 30 yard radius. Mm-hmm. And, and I had that giant of a nine point feeding under my tree and he walked by other brows that I didn't fertilize. Hmm. So it's, I, I have proof I've got on video that that buck and his little buddy picked out the area that I, I fertilized and it was natural browse. Yeah. It was a place that, that, um, a lot of people would have probably put a feeder up, mm-hmm. but, um, but I, I went the natural route and I loved it, man. And I'm not saying if you put a feeder up, that's the wrong thing. Well, it's also, it's also a little bit like having your own secret spot. You know, yeah. it's probably nobody have not now. And it's not like you're sharing your property with people or you, at least you hope you aren't, you know, people trespassing or anything, but Nobody would walk past there and know that you Mm-mm. you threw fetal, fertilizer down three months before, right? You know, and so you've got these hot spots in your mind, almost like you know, you can almost think of it like an artificial reef that we have in the Gulf right. or yeah. like Pontchartrain. Like you've got to have the coordinates to fish it. It just looks like water. Yeah. You don't know that there's a bunch of bait balls under a bunch of cement balls down there at 20, you know eighteen or twenty feet. Um, and so um, you know that's just, that's exciting also because that's something that. Only you possess that knowledge. There's no giveaways for that. I mean, there might be a, you know, I don't know if even if I was walking through the woods, if I would really notice that there was a more fruitful, um, you know, patch of grass or, right. or, or a thicker patch of grass or a more fruitful uh, thorn patch or something, briar patch or anything like that. But um, that's got to be a, a cool little aspect of it also. Well, think about it this way, because uh, when when it comes to planting food plots for wintertime hunting we all plant pretty much the same stuff right? yeah it's wheat it's oats uh some clover. people it's clover it's yeah. chicory it's kale it's rape you know that's the new stuff now right is the, is the chicory and kale and some people will, will plant ryegrass as well um but if you look at your you know your typical property and the neighboring properties it's going to be a bunch of food plots of pretty much the same thing so if I'm on a, you know, if I live in an area of the city where it's, it's only Taco Bells, you know, <laughs> it's going to get pretty boring and, and, and yeah. I could be 
you know, I could go to Taco Bell for every dinner and, and it may be, you know, on one side of the, the town and the other, it doesn't matter. But if you do something different mm-hmm. and if you offer something different, then you're more likely to keep your deer. And that's kind of what I was thinking was, you know, how can I give them? So I'm going to plant wheat. I'm going to plant oats. It's, it grows the best on my place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a food for the warm part of the winter and it's a food for when everything freezes over. So I got it covered, but let's do something else. You know, let's, I'm going to do the turnips. I'm going to do the clover. I, that's, that's an annual thing, but let's offer them something that I don't think anybody else is doing. You're, you're mainly just boosting what's already there. I'm right? boosting it. Yeah. 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 So let's, um, let's change gears a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about your, your equipment, your preferred equipment. You know, what are you hunting out of? What are you hunting with? What do you, what do you like? What kind of bow do you have? What kind of gear are you taking in the stand? Cause this is all, I like to ask people this question cause it's all very personal to everybody. What they, you know, what you decide to take in the woods with you is, there's a lot of thought that goes into mm-hmm. that. So tell us about that. Probably the most important thing that I take with me is um, a Hostess cupcake or something to snack on in the stand. <laughs> yeah. Satsumas, usually during that time of the year. I love to snack on foods uh, when I'm 30 foot up in the tree. And uh, like I said, you know, for me, uh, I, I love to shoot, but it's not about that. So I, I'm always going to have something sweet in, in my backpack. Um, I do, uh, I have a bow that, uh, is like old trusty girlfriend or wife that you've had forever and you don't want to change. It's Matthew's adrenaline Mm -hmm. from 2007. Um, a lot of people are trying to talk me into getting something new, but I, I, I know every, every, um, part of that bow and, and, uh, uh, it just fits me perfectly. Yeah. You know, I know every people curve, give, people every give wrinkle. You, people give you a hard time about it. They do, man. Yeah. And, and I think you were one of them, actually. Oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> I, I, think, I think my exact words for you were, you know, there's, they've come out with new bows since 2004. Yeah, they, they have yeah. plenty. But um, but I love it. it. It was a bow that was given to me when I was playing with the Cleveland Indians. And, man, when you're playing Major League Baseball, you're going to get a lot of gear. They they always want to uh, have you try out new stuff, and they want to see photos of you with, with some of the gear. Mm-hmm. And um, that stops uh, when you retire. Abruptly. It stops. <laughs> the day you retire, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's over. But uh, So I, that's my favorite bow. And um, I like a good pair of, uh, of binoculars. I've got uh, Leica binoculars, and um, I always have to take them. Uh, I do a lot of glassing, uh, range finder, which is very, very important to me. Although what I do early in the year is, is when I either go put a stand up or when I go check on my stands, which will be in the very near future, uh, I will step it off and mm-hmm. I'll put either a broken arrow or I'll tie a ribbon to a tree because I don't like all that extra movement in a tree. And to me, if I'm going to use a range finder, I'm going to range uh, some some locations that I feel like I'm going to shoot well before I know animals are coming. I'm I'm going to know what's out there. I like to I like to step it off early in the year, and that way it's it's always there. But um, I always got to have a good book or a magazine. A book, yeah, man. You don't just I play mean, on your phone the whole time. No, I do not. Really, I do not. That is um, to me that is a no no. It is my opportunity to get away from that phone. Yeah. 
And uh, the last thing I want to do is uh, to Im- uh, emerge myself into Facebook posts or, or Amazon or whatever. It's To me, it's all about being one with nature. And, um, and when you add that, that electronic and that smartphone to it, it takes you away from it. You're, mm-hmm. you just soon be inside. Um, yeah. because to me it's, it's decompressing and getting away from the grind every day. And that cell phone is the grind as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That's a good point. So, uh, so shoot, shooting a, a Matthews adrenaline, which by the way is a great bow. I can't remember. Honestly, I can't remember if it was a switchback of the adrenaline that was, I can't remember if it was Matthew's first or the first parallel limbo. Uh, I think it was the first parallel mm-hmm. limbo. I think so. Um, but uh, that's a classic, man. There's a lot of people that, um, even even today, like w- with Louisiana Bowhunter, I'm posting these bow reviews that we're in. We're in, we're in the middle of releasing them right now, um, where we try and do under a minute and a half long video just showing people what the new bows are this, are this year. Mm-hmm. And I would I would say... Out of every post, there's at least one guy that pipes up and he's like, "My adrenaline's awesome. I can't. You won't pull it away from me. For, you know, mm-hmm. you know. I'm still shooting a switchback. You know, you, I couldn't trade it for the world. And and so, um, in fact, you know, one of my buddies, Ronnie Dugat, he still shoots a switchback, and um, he, you can't convince him that anything out right now is is, is better right. or or even as good. Um, and those old bows, I mean, I got. I'm even guilty of it, man. I you know, last year I hunted only traditional. I uh, traded away my prime. I was shooting a prime impact mm-hmm. from 2013. So when I was making fun of you about your bow, I was being pretty hypocritical. Um, <laughs> but uh, I bought it back last week. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was 200 bucks. How could I not? You know, um, I traded it away for a $900 trade uh, for a, a, a very nice three-piece traditional bow that a guy was a custom traditional bow a guy was kind of dumping. And um, I reached out to him a couple weeks ago and I, you know, kind of testing the waters. I was like, hey, man, did you kill anything last year with that bow? No, I didn't kill anything. And I was like, oh, well, let me know if you want to get it, get rid of it. And, you know, you know how a negotiation goes. The first one to mention a number loses, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, he goes, what, what would you give? what would you give me for it? And in my mind, I'm like, man, I'd pay 400 bucks, you know, for it. And um, I hope he's not listening to this. But uh, anyway, I was like, oh, man, it's your bow. You tell me what you want for it. And he was like, could you do 200? And I was like, gotcha. yeah, (laughs) when can you meet? You know, sure. Um, So, I mean, I bought it back. But but here's the thing, you know, when it comes to bow specs out these days, at IBO, this is a 2013 bow. It IBOs 340. My draw length is 29 and a half, 70 pounds, um, six and a quarter inch brace height. It shoots a hunting arrow, and I shoot light arrows. I'm, you know, this we haven't really gotten into this much on the podcast yet, but I'm a speed guy. Mm-hmm. I believe speed matters, not because of impact or cut or or you know penetration. All of those things are. Um, byproducts of speed but the reason why i like speed is because of a flat trajectory Mm -hmm. and i shoot a single pin the flatter my trajectory is the further out my 20 yard pin is accurate you know what i mean i don't have to make a big adjustment on my dial to go from 20 to 30 or 20 to to 40 Mm -hmm. you know i can hold four inches high at 40 if i don't have time to adjust it and i'm good Whereas if I'm shooting 280 or below or something like that then yeah you you better have that second or third pin dead on but Anyway, 
the reason I bought that bow back was because, you know, I'm looking at, you know, the PSEs out this year. They have a phenomenal evolved cam system. Um, the Expedite shoots like 360. It's stupid. Mm. It shoots 335 with like a true hunting situation arrow. And um, my bow is shooting 318, 319. Mm-hmm. And it's five years old now. And so I'm, I'm, con- I'm comparing it to, you know, Bows are almost every bow out there that's top of the line is at that 335 to 350 IBO range. Um, now, what's your draw length? 28? Yeah. Yeah. So you're 28. So you're probably going to be lucky to get 300 out mm-hmm. of anything out right now just because IBO is done at 30 inches, mm-hmm. you know, a 350 grain arrow. But for me, at a 29 and a half inch draw length, I'm able to get that extra 15 or 20 feet per second. And people will argue with this until the, you know, they're blue in the face, but that matters in deer's reaction time. Mm-hmm. Cause not every deer is able to be killed at 15 or 20 yards. Your the buck of your lifetime might be at 32 yards and that's still well within ethical yardage, ethical range. And so if he comes in and like you said, like earlier where they juke you and they, they, they stare you down yeah. and it feels like you're, you're in the standoff for, for 30 minutes they're on high alert. If you don't aim low, anticipating the drop with a slower bow, you, yeah. you'll shoot over their back. Yeah. And that, you know, that that 15 or 20 feet per second more, and I'm actually working on an article right now with Ryan Saucier, one of our contributors. I've kind of, he, he said he wanted to take the lead on this. I was like, we need to, you need to put out a scientifically, mathematically factual article comparing the speed ranges of bows compared to the uh, reaction time of deer. And let's do some comparisons of how far a deer can drop at 25 yards with a bow at 260 feet per second, mm-hmm. one at 280, one at 300, and one at 320. And let's look and see on the in inches how far high or low your shot would be if you're all shooting in the exact same place because a doe, I mean, they can drop like that. Yeah, you know. And so, it's um, true. you know, for for me. I bought my bow back because it was a great deal. I'm comfortable with it. it. I mean, it's just like you said. It's like you know, you're a longtime girlfriend or your wife. It's just it's like coming home, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but I also wasn't blown away by bow technology that's out right mm-hmm. now. I don't think it's worth necessarily for me personally the investment of of getting possibly the same performance as what I already have. As what you have, yeah. Yeah. And and, and look, it's. The bows today are unbelievable. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. It's it's where archery is at and where it's going. My fear is, and I know you, you shoot a traditional bow, every year and every advancement, we are going further and further away from it actually being a primitive weapon. Mm-hmm. It's no longer primitive when you... Have you seen you seen the new Garmin sites that are out yeah. now? That's yeah. not primitive. Yeah. And you'll not see that on my bow ever. Yeah. Um I started shooting a bow with a matchstick as a as as a pen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when I st- I started with a traditional bow and I taped a matchstick on there. And so I would like to preserve a little bit of of that primitive feel. Uh I still have a 50 caliber hawking black powder gun that uh you know is it, it blasts smoke before the you yeah. hear anything i mean i like that um i i like t- to it, it it's it's kind of uh man it's just 
you know, I like to shoot distance now. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not, and, and I do take in consideration the drop of the deer. I, that I do aim knowing that they're going to drop, but, um, where we're going now, it's, it, uh, it, it's incredible. The advancements that we have, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll ever partake in that, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm content with uh with my matthews from 2007 well, but if anyone you, wants to let me try another one i will <laughs> <laughs> and in 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 the other thing i know scott Rowe uh rib jabbed you a little bit on this so you have a matthews journaline and then a quiver that is for a hoyt right? that's correct yeah so you make a little mix and match there yeah i do i'm not afraid of that either i mean if you if you look at some of my equipment and some of my stands um i'm pretty creative yeah <laughs> in making things work hoyt um uh sent me a bow about the same time and um it was a v-tech is that the one that i have is that the, do you have the VTech? I don't know. I, I you know gave, I gave me, you a PSC, and I might have given you the Hoyt VTech. Yeah, um, and it's so, still back there. I haven't it, done anything with it. Uh, it. It was a great bow. Loved that Hoyt, but uh, I had to take the quiver off of it because the Matthews didn't didn't come with a quiver. And you uh, weren't that good of a baseball player to get a full. No, package. you have to be really good. You to get, have to be really get good. That Matthews quiver. <laughs> <laughs> you got to. We're talking Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Bryce they got Harper. Quivers. Now they they probably have quivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it. it uh, I'll, I'll use whatever and um, and make it all look good. And didn't pass Scott Rowe. That's for sure. He, yeah. he picked it out uh, and gave me some grief for it. But doesn't matter. I mean, um, as long as it works, that's yeah. what concerns me. Well, so uh, there was a, a picture you, you and I were discussing a few months ago, working on a deal on a four-wheeler. I was looking for a four-wheeler. You had one, and uh, you took a picture of it and sent it to me. And in the back of the in the background of the shop at your camp was a, um, a homemade deer stand, wooden platform, uh, metal frame, wooden yeah. platform is a lock on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked a little, a little bit about that earlier today, but, um, you're still using a lot of deer stands that you built by hand. You are still building them by hand these days. Yeah. Or patching them up by hand. Um, and I, I have some new stuff out there, but I just, I like that old school stuff. That is a stand that, uh, my dad used, uh, when he was in that hunting club in St. Francisville mm-hmm. way back in, in the eighties. And, um, and we, you know, we, we want to make sure it's safe and it is, uh, and we've added, you know, now with ratchet straps, you, you, we put two ratchet straps. It has a chain on it, but, uh, we just retired an old Amaker, uh, climber that, um, uh, my dad used in a baker stand that, uh, basically it, it, I, it's extremely dangerous, <laughs> but, um, but we like, we're old school, man. Yeah. We, we like it. You know, if we, it's, we not, enjoy if that. it's not broken. Don't fix it. We still, you know, we were talking, we still build our own ladder stands and, and, uh, we've got some box stands for, for the youngsters, uh, to sit in. We build those by scratch. You'll see me around September at home depot wheeling a ton of two by fours and plywood <laughs> out of there that's for deer stands um so it's part of the fun right yeah. is is to the camaraderie it's not like the duck blind when you can fry bacon and eggs and talk during you, you do it when you're at the camp and you're you're building stands and and barbecuing and and mm-hmm. you know i enjoy it i enjoy the whole experience no i get it man that 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 adds another level of um 
of uh, in- involvement, of course, but also pride in your whole season. Yeah. You know, it's a uh, uh, it's another factor that a lot of people probably haven't experienced. You know, a lot of people make their own box stands, but there aren't a lot of people making ladder stands these days, especially with you know the price of a sixteen foot ladder stand from Walmart. It's like sixty bucks sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, so it isn't even worth it price wise to to even uh, from op- from an opportunity cost standpoint to build your own. But um, but it's good because I mean I'm sure your daughter helps you build them and, and gets you watching. So you're kind of ingrained in that pride in her as well doing that. Yeah. So um, that's pretty cool, man. Well, so so you've been at retired for how many years now? I retired in 2009. Gotcha. So so what are you doing these days? What's keeping you busy uh, during baseball season? I am so this past year I, I was hired by ESPN to be a baseball analyst for uh, ESPNU and the SEC Network, and I uh, did an awful lot of studio work for the SEC Network and the SEC Channel. And um, I'm also a color commentator for ESPNU and the SEC. Uh, so springtime, which I'm a very avid turkey hunter, um, I was only able to go turkey hunting one time this year because mm-hmm. of the baseball season. Um, and along with that, um, being an announcer, I also give uh, – I have a baseball academy – and uh, I put on free clinics and, and um, camps for local baseball players, and we've traveled out of state at times as well. And then I've got a charitable foundation called the David DeLucci Foundation, and um, uh, our mission is to support or protect those who protect us, support the uh, local law enforcement and um, servicemen and women, and uh, also offer sports programs to everyone, um, including those who do not have the financial means to participate in leagues. I believe we make for a better community when um, our youngsters um, have a purpose and and learn to be valuable members of society, and I think you can do that through sports, and especially respect and back our law enforcement. I think mm-hmm. when you mesh those two together, I think the future is very bright for where we live in. Well, you had an archery tournament. Uh, it was in February, right, of yes. 2018? Yeah. So mm-hmm. tell, tell us about that archery, because that was a fundraiser for law it, enforcement. It was, yeah, it was a fundraiser. We, um, we uh, put it on in February. It wasn't the ideal date that we wanted. It, it will be uh, a September event in the future. Um, but we put it in, and um, we partnered with Califf, Capital Area Law Enforcement Foundation, and we raised money to buy protective gear in uh, bulletproof vests and helmets. Um, very, very uh, great turnout, man. We um, we had an open um, competition for individuals. And uh, we also had a law enforcement competition where they were able to shoot a 3D range in teams of three mm-hmm. uh, law enforcement agencies from all over the state. We had about 120. Yeah, because the money went to all law enforcement. All law it enforcement. just wasn't yep. local here. Yeah, right. I was on the board of directors for for Califf, and uh, Califf takes requests from all over the state. Different agencies send in requests. So I saw what... Uh, everyone was was asking for and and in need of and it's frightening to know how many of our law enforcement are out there protecting us and and working on the streets every day with either an expired 
protective gear or uh, or not even wearing it. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy that we saw with our uh, law enforcement um, being ambushed um, at uh, at the the car wash. I knew two of the three guys that mm-hmm. were um, slain that day. And, um, and we had another one shortly after that, uh, these guys need our support, man. They need, they need to know that we're behind them and what better way than to buy protective gear for them. And so that shoot, uh, my goal was to, to merge the general public and the law enforcement in an event that they shared a common interest, which was hunting and archery and, um, and have them mingle. And that way the law enforcement members would feel the love from the outdoorsmen and um it was outstanding man it was how many, how many attendees you had did you have? i think we had 120 um was was the number that my my sister is the um uh chairperson and and she, she is works tirelessly on on that event she's the executive director of the foundation i think we had 120 she knows all the specifics but it was great um, East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office team number one, because I think they submitted three teams, ended up winning it. Mm-hmm. It was at their range. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was up just up sixty one. Yeah. Uh, so it was hard to convince everybody else that that wasn't rigged to benefit yeah. <laughs> them. But uh, it was it was fantastic. The turnout was great, and uh, we're gonna do it um, in September this year. And this year, but it won't be it it won't be. So two uh, months, from, not two months from now, huh? Yeah, two months from really? now. Really? But okay. what we're doing is because we did, it, it, we had such a great uh, event in February. We're just offering it for the law enforcement agencies to come and get a tune-up before hunting season. It's mm-hmm. kind of like an appreciation shoot for them, and then we'll we'll go back uh, the next September and have it open to the public in, mm-hmm. in the big tournament that we had. But uh, we felt like we just didn't want to go back from uh you know what six seven months earlier um and and do it again Mm -hmm. you know it was just too soon too much too soon so we're gonna do it get them a weekend to to shoot the range and we'll we'll have some vendors out there for law enforcement only and their families and um uh i'm i'm big proponent for what what the men and women do for us on a daily basis and um we live we live in a town that i think uh, majority of the people here feel the exact same way as we mm-hmm. do, and it's a good way to support them. Absolutely, man. No, that's a great organization, a great event y'all holding. So as soon as uh, y'all get it back open up to the public next September, get with me and we'll yeah, make sure to push it, it for you. And, and appreciate you being there as, as well and shooting it. So no problem. What's funny about that was I still, you know, we just talked about my compound. I just bought it back like two weeks ago. So I didn't have a compound for it. So I called Troy at Bowie Outfitters and talked to Lee and Troy. And I was like, listen, uh, I don't have a bow. <laughs> I, I got to shoot David's tournament. What do you got? Like, I'll literally take anything. So they give me like, I want to say it was like a Hoyt Charger package bow, you know, point zero two nine five pin sight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the uh, peep sight rubber tube. I mean, we're talking like a $500 package bow. And I was like, Sounds great. Let's go. You know, so I pick it up maybe two hours before your tournament. I very shittily paper tune this thing. Okay. (laughs) To the bare minimum acceptance level of which you would be like, yeah, that's good. And get three arrows. And I'm like, 
Let's go. Uh, and I was dialed into 20 and nothing else. 20 only. And then your tournament was like out to 40. So yeah. that was a crapshoot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but so here's the, th- I don't remember how many like hunter class people you were, but I came in fifth, which was, should not have happened for a bow that I picked up three or four hours before that was very terribly yeah. tuned by myself, which I am not a bow tech at all. There are a lot of uh, things I'm good at in the world. Tuning a bow is not it. Okay. Well, I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings, but the four that finished before you, they they bought a bow at the event and they just started shooting. So mm. you had more time to practice than they did. They One just, hour, yeah, that hour it, makes a difference. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it was great, man. It, it was we had uh for the individuals, we split it up. Uh we had the outdoor division and the professional division and uh, those were the guys that shot with magnification and, and stabilizers longer than I think 12 inches. So you did, you did awesome. But, um, you know, look, I mean, it was, it was about being there and, um, supporting the cause. And I, I greatly appreciate what you had to go through to be a part of it. That means a lot. <laughs> no worries, man. Well, you know, we, I learned this, I learned this at our, at our tournament, which, you know, we had our first Bowhunter, Louisiana Bowhunter 3D Challenge the, the month after yours. Um, and I learned something at, at that. Um, and that's the, you'll be surprised who does support you and who doesn't support you. Mm. It, um, there's going to be people out of the woodwork that, that come out of the woodwork that are going to say, man, I love your organization. I'm glad you're doing this. You've never met these people before. They don't know you. They're only doing it for the cause. And then you've got people that are your best friends that you you almost don't even feel like you should have to ask because you expect them to be there and they won't show up. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's uh and I'm not trying to sound negative there, but it was at our tournament, I was overwhelmed by the amount of people that showed up that I did not have any contact with. They did it didn't matter who owned the company, it didn't matter who ran it. They were behind the brand and the event, and they wanted to meet other bow hunters, so they came two, three, four hours just to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are my favorite favorite people that I met. Was the ones that, like I said, the ones you don't expect to get the support from, are the ones that are most surprising sometimes. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you know, it's it. Think about it. I mean, the bow hunting community is is kind of like fly fishermen, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's. Um, it is a skill that we take pride in and, uh, and we're close knit and we love to get together. And it's, it's kind of that locker room feel when you get a whole bunch of people in there that are support, supporting a good cause that have something in common and, and the outdoors draws you together, you know, and, and people can sit there and swap stories and, and show, you know, the, the new products that they have and, and why their bow does this and does that. And, and I don't think there's, there's very many people in, in archery that really feels like they're superior to everybody else. They just all seem so down to earth, you know, and they'll talk to anybody. And, And I remember for my event brought down a buddy of mine from dead ringer, um, Mike Galloway. And, uh, it's a guy that's been, uh, with hardcore decoys and, and, uh, Avery, and he's been all throughout the, the hunting industry. And they just wanted to talk to him about anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, guys, it was, he was, he was the celebrity and he should be, you know, but he was swapping stories. And, and, and I think that's what the archers are, like what you're talking about, man, if you, if you have a good event, 
and you stand for something that's interesting and exciting and, and easy to support, you're going to get a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I, I greatly appreciate what you're doing for, for bow hunting. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, I think, uh, um, it's pretty special and, and, and having played all over the country and, um, and, and, and being involved in the outdoors and hunting all over the country is Louisiana is a special place, not only because of the outdoors and what it offers as a state, but the culture and the people here mm-hmm. and, um, and the hunting community is, is really, really close knit, whether you agree or disagree with management or feeding or new bows or old bows, we're all in this together, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if it all goes away, we're left without, I think, one of the, the coolest hobbies that there is. Yeah, you know? yeah, I agree. Well, you had you also had um, yeah, the trained assassins there. You had Rusty, Slade. Was Craig there? Craig, Craig, did, was, there, Craig yeah. was there, yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I met those guys. I'd met, met Slade one time before. I've been, I've been talking with Craig and Slade back and forth um, about doing a podcast with them. And then I talked to, uh, uh, Slade about doing one, just he and I on kind of an inside track of how you purchase a piece of property. Mm -hmm. What's that whole process like? Um, because there's some people out there that for, for them owning a piece of land, no matter how big or small is, uh, a life, like a life dream. Right. Mm-hmm, for sure. And and so of course you, you, you've got to have money, you've got to buy it, you've got to be able to afford at least a down payment on it, and then make payments on it. But that's what I'm wanna get get with Slade on is is like, hey, let's say a guy just wants to buy fifty five acres, what does he need to do? Let's say a guy wants, a guy wants to buy three hundred acres, what's he need to do? Um and what you know, what's the approval process like? What what are what's financial expectations mm-hmm. and things like you know, just kinda just do an episode informing people of the whole process because like for me personally, I don't own any land. I don't have a piece of property that I, I can call mine other than, you know, my house and mm-hmm. my quarter of an acre yard, you know? Um, but, um, you know, I talked to him and, you know, Slade, Slade's like, well, how long does this thing need to be? And I was like, uh, we need to keep it under two hours. If we could two days. <laughs> yeah. <man>. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was like, we do multiple parts. And I was like, let's see if we can just do this as like a one Oh one course mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah. And, and we can f- follow up with it later. But, um, anyway, uh, I, I need to line that up with them pretty soon. But, um, you know, this podcast thing is, it's, uh, it's taken off. It's become something that, I've become really passionate about, and it's for a couple of reasons. Number one, social media has started to massively limit the reach of pages and people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm talking a quarter of what it was last year, and I'm I'm realizing that majorly with these bow review videos. I don't know if you've seen these online mm-hmm. that I've been posting, but it's just a, a quick one-minute video. Uh, not even an in-depth view into a bow. It's just like, hey, I'm so and so with so and so archery shop. I've got so and so bow. Come see it. Here's mm-hmm. here's here's right. about the bow, and that's it. It's like a free commercial, and that's how I look at it. It's a, it's commercial for the shop, which is the most important part to me. Is that we're helping get exposure to these archery shops. Um, number two, I get the content because I'm doing this for free for them, and then number three, the viewer gets the information. They get to they get to maybe learn about a new archery shop in their area and they definitely get to learn about a new bow that's out this year, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, but in saying that I've been posting these and last year we were getting between 
let's say on the low end, 3,000 views. On the high end, as much as 15,000 views for a video. I can't even break 2,000 right now just because, I mean, there's such a governor put on Mm -hmm. a page's reach where um, it it almost doesn't even matter how many followers you have anymore. You're only going to be able to reach a percentage of of the people that follow your page and like it. And so the podcast is important because... I really think that this um, metering down of social media is going to level the playing field of of content providership for mm-hmm. people. And you're going to see a lot of people that are going to close their pages down or close their business down. Or And I hate to say that, but there's a lot of people that their business is 110% social media. Mm-hmm. And if they can't reach their audience, then they don't really have a business. Right. And so I don't want to, you know, I'm trying to stay ahead of that. And so the podcast is something that's that's extremely popular right now. People are very passionate. The podcast people that listen to podcasts are uh, in a way like bow hunters. They're passionate about it. They seek it out. They you know they don't want to listen to the radio. They only only want to listen to um, you know Joe Rogan or or Steve mm-hmm. Rinella or any of these other guys out there. Um, and that's all they listen to. They probably haven't listened to the radio in a couple of months, if if not years, mm-hmm. because all they're doing is just hammering themselves with Cameron Haynes podcast, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was a, an easy decision to invest in the equipment, make sure that we're putting out good quality audio, um, and, uh, and then putting out good information, interviewing people like you and Slade and Warren Womack and the guys from Acadian Woods and, and just, you know, also just regular old bow hunters, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, and so this podcast is another outlet for us to kind of circumvent that addiction to social media. Um, because we got to be creative. We can't, you know, we're going to newsletters, we're going to email um, marketing, we're going to uh, Instagram's big, but it's very slow to grow. Very, very slow to grow. Um, but the podcast is just another attempt to get that media out there for people to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other factor is the fact that, I mean, you you definitely are not an example of this. You literally talk for a living now. That's your yeah. job. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, is that we love writing articles. We love putting written content out. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that people that are great at deer hunting very rarely are also good writers, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Uh, and, but everybody that kills a deer can hold a conversation the way you and I are right now. So this is going to be the way that we're kind of capturing that moving forward because I can't, I might not always be able to write a, you know, have, have an article written by somebody that's been bow hunting for 30 years because mm-hmm. they, they can't put three sentences together. But um, on the other hand, they're passionate about it. They can explain the process the way you and I are sitting down right now yeah. talking, you know, I think that's cool. I, I, I think that's great. And, and, you know, when you said that, I, I think that a bow hunter tells a more colorful story about his hunt than a rifle hunter. Yeah. And I'm a rifle hunter too. Okay. I don't get me wrong, but uh, oftentimes when you sit in, in a box stand, overlooking a, a food plot, you know, deer steps out and, mm-hmm. and pow, you know, you yeah. get, everybody's got that pow, yeah, you know? yeah, and that's it. But a bow hunter can tell you, you know, um, it was, the wind was whistling through the trees and the squirrel was coming down. I yeah. mean, they, all the fine I details. had to put my, I had to put my cupcake down. Yeah. My I, ho-ho or whatever I, you, what do you bring with the, you? Uh, 
just depends on what I feel like. <laughs> I mean, but Hostess Cupcakes probably the yeah. number one cupcake of choice. But you know, the 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 wrapper made a little sound, and I turned my <laughs> head, and you know, yeah, the, yeah. the bow hunters know everything that yeah. happens. You well, know? you got you. I mean, it's it's a great point. Is that you can tell the story of a lifetime on a three year old doe. Yeah. Oh, hey. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't, you know, the story of a bow hunt, a successful bow hunt, doesn't begin with how big the deer was, ever. Mm-hmm. It's usually some depiction of a, a literal standoff, you know, mm-hmm. a match of right, wits, right, you know. Right. Um, it isn't about, you know, it, it can't be summed up in a picture, put it like that. You know, you, mm-hmm. you can kill a 150-inch buck and take a great picture and you'll have that forever, but... The reality is, is sometimes the story of that 150-inch buck is a really shitty one. Mm-hmm. But the story of the doe you killed after it, that's the one that yeah. you tell the rest of your life, you know? Yeah, I remember. I, I, I tried this tactic early on as a youngster, uh, which is, is makes for some of the coolest hunts ever. And it's usually with a bow uh, because of the time of the year that acorns are falling out of trees. Mm-hmm. And I would pick up gravel from from the the front of our camp at, at my dad's camp and uh, I would put it in Ziploc bags and I would go sit you know 25 foot up in an oak tree and I would drop a pebble of gravel every you know 10 seconds to yeah. make it sound like acorns are raining yeah, out of yeah. the tree and you would be surprised the number of deer that would come up and that to me that's just that's like ringing cool- a dinner bell exactly it yeah. was the coolest thing ever because I actually had something to do with that deer coming within yeah. bow range, you know, and, and, uh, when you hear bow hunters that can describe the tactic they used and, 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 you know, what time of day it was and what was going on, they, they're more cognizant of their surroundings, I think, than any other hunters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're exactly. And I, I've always kind of explained that is we, we, we take so many more things into consideration before we hit the woods, you know, sitting in a stand, that's like, that's one of the final things that we physically do before we kill a deer, but it's everything leading up to that. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't just whimsically wake up with, you know, a a bad hangover without showering, smelling like beer and campfire smoke and just walk out in the woods and sit in in a stand and, and legitimately think we have a chance at killing something every time we go. We, I mean, it affects everything from, you know, how long we're in the kitchen while we're cooking dinner the night before because yeah. we don't want our hair to smell like, uh, you know, like, like grease or, or oil from the backstrap being fried up, um, hanging our clothes outside, um, all, all the way into, like Frank Sullivan said the other day, you know, you know your breath is one of the biggest uh, giveaways for, for scent control uh, for a deer. He's like, I mean, you know, I'll, I hunt with a face mask so that people can't, uh, for deer can't pick up my, my scent downwind from my breath. Of course, he's a dentist. He's a dentist. He's, a dentist. he's got good breath. He, so, can, he can make it smell like yeah, whatever he is. So I'm, I'm looking at like him and I'm clover. like, I really don't think you have bad breath, yeah. Frank. You know, I'm good. At least I, that would be bad for business if you did. Yeah. You know, but um, anyway, uh, you know, that, that's the type of stuff that we think about. That's the type of stuff that we think about as we're going to bed and we're preparing for a hunt four hours from mm-hmm. now. You know, that's the things that keep us, keep us awake. Um, and when you get it all to come together like that, that's, that's where it comes full circle. You know, and like you said earlier, it isn't about the kill. 
It isn't, we don't, we don't just go out to kill things. If we, you know, if we were just straight killers, we'd probably try and run down every squirrel that ran in front of us in front of the road. I don't know about you, but I try and avoid them. That's not how I want to kill an animal, you know? Yeah. But, I, I, I kind of hit the accelerator on them, to be honest with you. The yeah. squirrels wreaking havoc at my house. Yeah. Well, everything. you see my pellet gun, right? Yeah. There. That's, yeah. I got one right I, by the door too. I went and bought that cause they're, uh, they've been, uh, actually, They've been chewing, these little MFers have been chewing up my European mounts uh, back over my boat in the backyard. Really? I've got like five or six, of my, I don't know how many it is, but every, every, I've only mounted one deer in my life. Um, and that was my big 10 point. And um, every other buck I've ever killed uh, has been a skull mount. And so I hang them in the backyard or, or, or like over my boat shed and they've been eating the antlers. So I kill mm. every damn one I see. But so maybe that was a bad example. Maybe we do try and kill the squirrels, yeah. you know, but, um, but anyway, uh, you know, th- that's not what it's about. It's about killing deer on our terms. Yeah. Right. That's what it, that's what it's really about. It probably makes for some of the most humorous hunts too. It, it you know, as a bow hunter, you have more things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, arrows fall out of the, you know, you go back to draw on a deer and arrow falls out. You know, I've yep. dropped bows before out of 25 foot <laughs> lock ons. You know, I mean, it, it, it is a funny, uh, experience at times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's, let's wrap this up, man. Where, um, where can people find you on social media? Where can people find you? Uh, uh I've got, I've got Twitter. I've got Facebook. I've got Instagram. Um, my wife tells me I need to be more active on it, but, um, at David Delucci is, uh, my Twitter and Instagram account. And, uh, the David Delucci foundation is, um, the Facebook, mm-hmm. um, address on that um and and we post a lot of stuff and uh on the david delucci foundation um website david foundation.com i believe is what it is um and then springtime check out the if you're a fan of college baseball uh i'll be announcing for the sec network again and um now is this your second or third year doing that i have done it actually for four years i've announced uh, at old miss for the sec plus network this mm-hmm. is my first year to be hired by espn and and be on the main sec network mm-hmm. um so um it uh was was now instead of doing only old miss games like i had been doing in the past it's for all of the sec teams yeah and uh it was a a, a magical baseball year this year uh, for teams like Mississippi State and Arkansas LSU did not have um, a year that that they're used to but they did make it into the playoffs and they had a great run toward the end Um, and I think it's going to be even more exciting next year so in the springtime dial into the SEC network I'll be there sounds good man we'll do it well I appreciate you being on uh you can literally what 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 is that you wrote over here on a Honda Polaris (laughs) electric (laughs) Oh, you're electric yeah, players? Yeah. Yeah, you rolled up. I was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, it's an ATV. Yeah. Or side by side. So um, anyway, be safe driving home. I will. <laughs> I'll and, watch out for squirrels. And I appreciate you uh, you coming on and, and talking with us, and uh, we'll have you on again. Man, man, thanks for having me. This has been great. Keep up the great work. Thanks, man. See you soon. See you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you've got anybody you want to hear on the podcast, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com or send us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, and we'll be sure to get back with you. We also want to say a big thank you to our two sponsors, Cousin Smokehouse and Steve German's Taxidermy Art. 
We appreciate everything you do for us, and we could not put this podcast on without you. Make sure that you're following Louisiana Bowhunter on Instagram, on Facebook, and also LouisianaBowhunter.com, where we make sure to update daily with new information, pictures, videos, and articles about deer hunting in the state. So we'll see you every Monday at 8 a.m. Until next week, thank you.